0: In 1876, a small Methodist church building near the ocean in Swan Quarter, North Carolina, was struck by a hurricane and damaged. It was restored, but another hurricane came and damaged it again in the town. And so the parishioners restored their place once more, but they decided enough was enough, and so they searched for a safer location for their building. They found some land that they thought would be the perfect spot. And they offered the owner of that location a very generous amount of money, but he refused. Then there came another hurricane. And this time there was massive flooding. So massive that it actually lifted the building from its moorings and sent the building floating downstream. And the residents of the town began to tie the ropes to their church building, hoping to keep it from floating away forever. But the current was too strong. Eventually, when the hurricane was over and the floodwaters Receded. The building came to rest on the exact piece of ground that the personers had previously tried to buy. This is a true story, by the way. So they went to the owner, and they once again made an offer. He refused their money again. But I'll give it to you, he said. The Lord definitely wants this building on this block. And so the sign in front of that building from that day forward said... The House God Moved. The House God Moved. This morning I'd like to give you a message entitled, The House God Moved. We've been given a lot of knowledge these past few months on the basis of the Apostles' doctrine, most recently on the unfolding of the Great Commission. Uh, we looked at the, the what exactly is the Great Commission in, in Acts 13 and 14. Then we looked at the foundation for our witness in Titus 2 and 3 and engaging our community and with one another in good works and building each other up and serving. And then we looked at our words in Colossians 4, 2 through 6 on, on uh, walking with wisdom toward those who don't know the Lord. And looking for opportunities and having our speech seasoned with salt and always being refreshed with grace so that we may know how we ought to answer every man. Then we looked in 1 Peter 3, which built on that again of a a life change so that people see that there is a hope that is in us and they begin to ask questions of the hope that's in us. And we are are to be always ready, always prepared to be able to give an answer of that hope that is in us with meekness and fear. And then we looked last week at using our homes and our families as bases for mission. And men, I wonder if you sat down with your households this week and said, what are the ways we can begin looking for opportunities to serve the Lord? And see God open up up possibilities and opportunities for conversations about the dear gospel of Jesus Christ, the treasure of the gospel. So we've been given a lot of information. But how does all this knowledge sink in? and make it those 18 inches from the brain to the heart and change us and motivate action. How does God move on the hearts of His church, the household of God, to be at the center of who and what and where He wants them to be? Certainly it has to start with intellectually understanding the foundations of our faith and the plan of God. But intellectual understanding is never the end all in the Word of God. God's purpose for His Word is for it to be penetrating deeply into our hearts and transform every part of us as disciples of Jesus Christ and bring into captivity every thought and motivation and resulting actions. So in Ephesians 3, verses 14-21, through Paul prays this very thing for believers. He is expressing the heart of God and His purpose, as we hear truth from His Word. That the implications of the Word of God for all of life, under His amazing calling from darkness to light, to participate with Him, and His galactic mission would take up residence in our hearts and embed. And we would begin to fully comprehend all that He is and is doing in His plane of love He's placed us in and is bringing others into So Paul says in Ephesians 3, verses 14 through 21, For this cause, for this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with might by His Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend to grasp, to understand with all the saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above, beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us,
1: to him be glory
0: in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Amen. Chapter 1, verse 15 through 23 is the first prayer of Paul in this letter. It's really organized around these two prayers. When you read a prayer in the letters, that's the expression of the writer saying, this is what I want God to accomplish through this letter. And if you compare the two prayers, which we don't have time to do this morning, the heart of what this letter is driving, at, you're going to notice some obvious similarities. In chapter 1, verse 17, there's a mention of spirit of wisdom and of revelation in him. In chapter 118, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, some illumination is requested. And then we see here in chapter 3, verse 18, that you may be able to be comprehended and grasped with all the saints. And so Paul is praying that God's wonderful plan, which he has been elaborating on in chapter 1 and 2 and 3, may be even more completely fulfilled in his reader's experience through a fuller comprehension and grasp in the heart and interchange. See, Christ has accomplished and is in the process of carrying out a magnificent plan for all of eternity. And we're part of it. We're saved from rebellion against God for his services by uh, by Jesus Christ. He's building his church, his true temple, and his kingdom. And chapters 1-3 through three of Ephesians explain that he has shared spiritual blessings with us. He's forgiven us for our rebellion against him. He's granted amnesty and he's seated us in a position of reigning with him just as if we're sitting on the throne with him. That's how he sees our position He's even prepared good works beforehand that we're now enabled to engage in and he will use to build his church and accomplish his purpose. But what is the key? What is the key to us being one-minded in that? And experiencing and participating in everything that God wants to do through us? It's not better programs, as valuable as programs can be. That is not the key. It is not more passionate songs for the church, as valuable as songs are for the church. It is not better preaching of the word, as important as the preaching of the word is. It is not more outreach. It is not deeper fellowship with each other. Though all these things are important and contribute to an end. But the end but the, but the means is this it is this prayer that we are to pray together. You might notice the plural there, ye. You all. Notice that phrase with all the saints. That we're not in isolation, that we're not working out ourselves spiritual growth alone, but together, connected in Him and calling upon Him. So our growth in this isn't to be private, but together. And this sincere request and genuine faith, this prayer of faith, God, listen, God will use to change the church in the world. I'll show you what we mean. Result of this prayer here in chapter 4, Verse 1 is a transformed walk. A walk. A pattern and a rhythm of actions that flow out of a church's changed hearts that have in faith asked God to do this to, the, to grasp what he's doing in his love. Changed hearts that have been overwhelmed with beginning to comprehend what Christ has done and is doing through the church. Charles Spurgeon, preacher in England in the 1800s, said this, Prayer pulls the rope below, and the great bell rings above in the ears of God. Some scarcely stir the bell, for they pray so lethargically. Others give but an occasional pluck at the rope. But he who wins with heaven is the man who grasps the rope boldly and pulls continuously with all his might. So I want you to take that thought and put it in the picture frame around these verses here. And we're to pray this together with all our might and cling on to the bell's rope and not let it stop clanging so that we really grasp and are overwhelmed with what has happened to us and what God will do through us above what we can even imagine to see with his glory filling his kingdom. There's four requests in Paul's prayer. I tried to highlight them on the screen. That ain't probably too small here in different colors here. And they must not be looked on as individual petitions like this. Rather, you need to look at them as, you remember when you would watch a, uh, uh, an old movie about pirates or, the, or a sea captain, he would pull out his little telescope, right? And what would he do? He would, would start to pull it out and unfold it. And these four requests in Paul's prayer are like the four parts of a telescope that is moving to the bottom one. That Paul is asking that God do this, 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 this in their lives, in their minds, in their hearts, so that Christ's glory fills his church, fills his people. Whether they're gathered together in an assembly, or whether they're, they're, in, they're in smaller groups in homes during the week, or whether they are uh, uh, scattered in, in action uh, among the lost. Four parts here. One request leads to the next one, and so on. He prays that the inner man would have spiritual strength, which would in turn lead to a deeper experience with Christ, and this deeper experience will enable them to apprehend, to get a hold of, to grasp, to comprehend God's great love in Christ, which will result in them being filled, and here's a statement of what maturity is, spiritual maturity, being filled with all the great fullness of God himself. So then Paul's praying for strength, for depth, for apprehension and fullness. So he starts off. For this cause I bow my knees to the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. For a Jewish uh, individual in that day, the posture of prayer generally was to stand. And Paul says, as I consider my father, it puts me in a state of humility and I prostrate myself. In awe, I am overwhelmed father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And to add to that, he reminds himself of who God is and his connection to humanity. And he says, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. When somebody was named in ancient days, the idea there wasn't just to distinguish you from someone else. That's Joe and that's Sally and that's Bill. But it was the idea of showing the true nature of that person. So God gave his Creatures as image bearers and name, not to just give them a label, but Paul is, is accentuating here the truth that God the Father has brought humanity into existence, which didn't exist before at creation. He's exercising dominion over them. He's giving us our appropriate roles here to give glory and honor. He's the creator of all living things. and Our existence, our breath, the very next breath you're going to breathe, is dependent on Him. He's a source of all life. He's great. He's sovereign. He's powerful. He's authoritative in heaven and earth. And he's, therefore, he's going to be able to fulfill these requests that are going to be asked, if that's who he truly is. But you see, the problem was, when, when we were made in God's image in Genesis, to reflect him in his goodness like a mirror, we rebelled against that. We wanted power. We wanted the glory instead of God-given glory. And we cracked that mirror, and so it's skewed. We began to have a love of power instead of engaging in the power of love for God and each other. Love and power, power of love. Love of power is wasted waste of continents, hasn't it, and empires. The power of love, God's love, has driven very weak people to do great things. So that's what he's praying here. That's the theme. So he says that he would grant you. That he would give. That God, out of his uh, kindness of, his, of, 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 of who he is, the goodness of who he is, would give you according to the riches of his glory. To be strengthened with power, might, through his spirit in the inner man. It starts the inside out. Religion always starts with the outside and thinks it can work its way in can't change the heart. God's work and the gospel works from the heart out. They will grant you according to the riches of his glory. Why does he say, why does he add that phrase, why does he just say that he gives you a, a, a power to be strengthened with, uh, through, the, through the spirit in the inner man? Why does he say according to the riches of his glory? Because he wants us to understand who God is. That the resources are available to fulfill this request that Paul is giving in boldness and confidence is the resources are limitless. According to the riches of his glory. What's God's glory? It's his radiance, his splendor, his perfection of character in all that he does. His glory is often joined with his power. It's, 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 his, it's his goodness overflowing. It, it sets him apart. And the giving that Paul is asking, the granting here, is corresponding, it's in accordance with, according to, the inexhaustible riches of that glory. It's on a scale in line with God's glory. In other words, Paul is asking us that God give as lavishly as only He can. And so he's formulating his prayer along these lines with who God is and what he can get, and he's assuring the, the, this little church in, in, in Ephesus, uh, which is modern day Turkey today, today uh, 2,000 years ago, he's assuring his readers that your father is totally able to meet these needs. What? To be what? He grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. What does that mean? Well, here's the problem. Our nature and who we are can't manufacture a godly life. We can't do it. It's not going to come from us. It's got to come from above. Imagine that you decided to go sailing. And Now that I have Dennis's attention, <laughs> Dennis is a sailor. But if you're like me, you don't have that experience. And so you go to the store and maybe you're like me and you get some books about or, if you're like my kids, you Google on YouTube how to sail and you watch videos. You carefully read them and then you talk to a veteran sailor like Dennis Small here this morning who answers questions for you and his trusty first mate here. The next day, you rent a sailboat. You examine it closely to make certain that everything's needed. For a successful sailing experience is present in its good working order. And then you take your boat out into the Rockland Harbor. Your excitement is at fever pitch, though you're afraid. But you follow the instructions you've read and the counsel that you got from, the, from Dennis. And you launch your boat into the water. And you monitor each step. And you hoist the sail. And it's at that precise moment you learn a lesson. You can study sailing. You might even be able to build a sailboat. You can seek from the wisest and most veteran of sailors. You can launch your boat into the most beautiful sea and harbor under a bright and inviting sun. You can successfully hoist the sail. But what? Only God can make the wind blow. Sail. You and I can study the Bible, we can orchestrate services, etc. We can do everything that lies in our responsibility and power, but when it comes down to only the Spirit is the one who makes the wind blow. And how does He do that? He does that upon our sincere request. He's strengthened by the Spirit in the inner man. Why? For what? That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So here's a section, the second section of the telescope. It's moving toward this. Be renewed with power in the inner man so that Christ can dwell in your hearts with faith. That word dwell is the idea of taking up residence. Uh, Logan and Hannah, they sold their beautiful house on the the river in in St. George and there's going to be a new owner there and that new owner is going to take up residence. And that new owner is going to Change the look of that house inside for sure. They're going to have their own set of decorations. They're going to have their own. They're, they're going to make it their own. Remember when you first moved in your house. You're like, why did they have that there? Or if you built your, your house, you designed it how you wanted it, right? Take up residence as the owner. You're, and the idea here is that your faith is working out in the surrender to Christ as the good master over all things in our life. That there aren't rooms or closets or basements that he doesn't take over, but all of life for all of Messiah. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Why? It's still not done. That's not the end. He's going somewhere with this. Why? That you all, being rooted in grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. That you all, again, together, here, being rooted and grounded in love. So he brings up a couple of illustrations. The, the plant illustration of roots and a foundation, grounded, being grounded. It's an interesting um, thought here put out by a science writer. who She shares an interesting fact about plants, <clears throat> especially how tiny seed. We don't think much of the acorns that fall on the oak trees. Um, but when that acorn... Uh, gets enough soil and and moisture so it starts to put down roots. Obviously the most essential thing for that plant's survival is its roots. And a science writer, Hope Jobber, she writes this, No risk is more terrifying than that taken by the first root. A root will eventually find water, but its first job is to anchor. Once the first root is extended, the plant will never again enjoy any hope of relocating to a place less cold, less dry, less dangerous. In fact, it will face frost, drought, and, the, and greedy jaws of animals without any possibility of flight. She calls taking a root of the plant, a big gamble. But if the seed takes root, it can go down 12, 30, 40 meters. The results are powerful. That tree's roots, as it grows, can swell and split bedrock. It can move hundreds of gallons of water daily for years, much more efficiently than any pump yet invented by man. If the root takes root, then the plant becomes all but indestructible in a certain sense. You can tear apart everything above ground and everything. And most plants can still grow rebelliously back from just one intact root more than once, more than twice. Paul said, put down your roots. Put them deep. It's not going to happen by you saying, I'm going to put my roots down. It's going to happen by you asking the Lord to help you. Depending on the spirit, put your roots in the soil of what? Of Christ's love. Christ's love. This is the verse 18. That you all being rooted in the ground below, love, you may be able to comprehend and grasp with all the saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. Here it is. Here's the key. To hear to hear. Grasping the love of Christ all its dimensions. Not three. He has four dimensions here, right? That passes knowledge. Doesn't that sound a little contradictory? Grasp something that passes knowledge. Right? And that's the beauty of it. Right? The love of Christ is like the ocean. Get your feet wet deeper and deeper. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not something we we just get our feet wet in and move on to it's something we Grow deeper. Think of our relationship with Christ like a balloon. The kids love balloons. And there's two ways to keep a balloon afloat, right? You fill a balloon with your breath. How do you keep it afloat? Keep smacking it, right? Keep smacking it up, right? That's how life without the Spirit is. Keep smacking it. Stop doing this. Get busy with that, right? Um. Maybe you're here today because you need to get smacked a little bit. (laughs) Be more generous. Go do this. Right? But there's another way to keep a balloon afloat, isn't there? Filled with helium. Floats on its own. Doesn't need to be smacked. And that's kind of what Paul's saying is this. It's going to be renewed by the spirit of our minds here. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna grow under the power of the Holy Spirit. It's gonna happen by this. It's gonna happen by seeing the size of Christ's love, seeing the the extension of His love, the beauty of God and His love. It's like the helium that keeps us soaring spiritually. And here's the thing: if you're like me, you can just begin to look at God's love as a theoretical thing, a good doctrine that we should believe, but doesn't begin to affect us. One pastor uh, shares a story of many years ago in his first pastor he met, uh, and there was a, a girl uh, who needed some counsel. She was about 16 at the time, and she was discouraged and becoming depressed. And, um, he met with her and her parents and tried to encourage her, but there was a, he said there was a revelatory moment when she said, yes, I know Jesus loves me. He saved me. He's going to take me to heaven, but what good is it when no boy at school will even look at? So here's what she said. She said she knew all these truths about being a Christian. And I hope you can relate to this and not say, oh, stupid her, right? This is, this, is, this is us. This is me. She knew all these truths about being a Christian. But they weren't of comfort to her. The attention or the lack of it of a cute boy at school was far more consoling or energizing or foundational for her joy and self-worth and the love of Christ. Now you fill in the blank. What gives you more joy than the grasp experientially of the love of Christ? What have we put in its place, right? And I say, well, that's a perfectly normal response for a teenage girl. In some ways it is. Normal isn't always good, though. But it was revealing how our hearts were. Jonathan Edwards, who God used in New England in the 1700s, a preacher, would say that she had the opinion that Jesus loved her. But she didn't really know it. Christ's love was an abstract concept, while the love of these others was real to her heart and motivating to her. And what Paul is praying is this, is that's where you and I can be. He's praying for the church, that the love of God in Christ doesn't say an abstract idea, but a real experience that we grasp. And it is so deep, that our human natural minds will not begin to mine it. Imagine an eight-year-old boy playing with a toy truck and then it breaks. And he's inconsolable. cries out to his parents uh, to fix it. And as he's crying, his dad says to him, Hey, a distant relative that you've never met has just died and he's left you a hundred million dollars. What will that child's reaction be? Well, if he's a child, he's probably going to cry louder until his truck's fixed, Right. He doesn't have the capacity to realize his true condition. Broken truck, $100 million, right? To, to realize his true condition to be consoled. And in the same way, Paul is saying there is a spiritual capacity that God wants to give to us to realize all that we have in Jesus. And a fuller grasp and comprehension of God's plan. And this is the reason that Paul prays that God will give Christians a spiritual ability to grasp the height, the depth, breadth, and length of Christ's salvation. Our lack of joy is, as Shakespeare wrote, the fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but ourselves. We're like the eight-year-old boy he rests his happiness in his circumstances in recognizing what we have in Christ. And notice how... Paul describes this love of Christ, right? These dimensions, these four dimensions. This love of Christ. Someone has said love of Christ is broad enough to encompass all mankind. Jew and Gentile particularly here in chapter 2. It's long enough to last for eternity. It's deep enough to reach the most degraded sinner. And it's high enough to exalt him to heaven. There's a pastor in California who passed from the 1960s to about the 19, early 90s. His name was Ray Stedman. He served with um, J. Vernon McGee at Peninsula Bible Church in the 60s. And he wrote this about these four dimensions. He says this. There are many who make beautiful suggestions about the meanings of these four dimensions. Some see in them the cross with its height and depth and length and breadth. Some see them as a description of the love of God, but I think they're a reference to some of the things Paul has already talked about in this letter. The length is what he calls in chapter one the hope to which you are called. The hope which began before the foundation of the world in eternity past and reaches on through all of recorded time into the unsearchable, limitless reaches of eternity yet to come. That is the length and scope of God's program. We're caught up in God's vast, cosmic endeavor to bring all things together in Christ. That's the hope of work, which we are called. The breadth is what he refers to as the riches of his inheritance among the Gentiles. The fact that Jew and Gentile and all men alike are gathered up in the church without difference or division. Black, white, rich, poor, slave, free man, male, female, doesn't make any difference. All are one, sharing equally in the riches of Jesus Christ at the cross. The height indicates where you are in Christ. Risen to sit together with him in heavenly places, far above all principalities, all powers, all authorities, in this age and in this age to come. It's the place of authority as a Christian, the place of power, to be free from everything that would drag us down and to live above all that would twist and demolish and destroy our lives behind his love. And finally, the death. is what he's described in chapter 2 is death. The living death out of which God has called us. In that death, we were victims instead of victors. Following the course of this age, living unwittingly as directed by the prince of the power of the air following the passions of the flesh doing what we thought was right and ended up being wrong in everything we attempted we were children of wrath as paul described us by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind out of that living death the depths of human depravity god has called us into the heights God doesn't move us beyond the love of Christ and the gospel. He moves us more deeply into it. Because all the power we need in order to change change and mature comes through the Holy Spirit using that and the gospel bearing fruit. The gospel didn't just simply ignite the Christian life. It's the fuel that is to keep you and I going and growing every day. Real change can't come apart from the fact of the gospel that God has pardoned me. And He looks at me through the work of His beloved Son as perfectly righteous. Now my walk flows out of that. Why does He do this though? He's not done. That you all may be filled with the fullness of God. Fullness. Paul will talk in um, chapter 5 how do we go on being filled with the Spirit. And the church Uh, Although we're already the fullness of Christ, Colossians says, is is to still grow up into him till it reaches his fullness. So what Paul is saying when he talks about the fullness of God is that God doesn't just want a bunch of people. God wants a bunch of people who are full of God. He doesn't just want our buildings full. He wants our buildings full of people who are full of God. we to grow up in Him and reach His fullness. It's His fullness which fills God Himself. In other words, His perfection. And it's a staggering thought here. But simply put, it's another way to say that all this is so that we reach maturity in Christ. Maturity in Christ. Come like Christ. God's purpose and promise. Read Romans 8, right? chain of things in Romans eight is so that we're conformed to the image of His Son, the fullness of God. So that Jesus' own prayer in John thirteen through eighteen is fulfilled: that the love which you, with which you have loved me may be in them, and I am. Now, he brings us to a closer to the doxology. This is his request. It's a long sentence, isn't it? Fill the fullness of God. So the glory of God fills the church. Now he says, unto him who is able to exceed abund- abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, not self-manufacturing. Unto him be glory of the church, by Christ Jesus, throughout, and I want you to see that word there, it says, throughout all ages the word is generations. Generations world without end, age after age after age for all eternity. I want you to think about this. Does God want to see this prayer accomplished? Yes. We're already seeing the capacity of what you'll be able to do. But notice what he says in this. this. God's ability to answer this prayer. Is this what we really want? Well, God is able to answer this prayer. Notice how emphatically he states this. Okay? He is able to do our work. Why? God is able to do our work because He's not inactive. He's not idle. He's not dead. He's not, God isn't twiddling His thumbs, right? He is able to do what we what? ask. Why? For He hears and answers prayer. He's able to do what we ask or think. He reads our thoughts. Sometimes we imagine things that we don't dare ask for and don't ask. He's able to do what we ask or even think. He's able to do all that we ask or think. He's not limited. But it's more than that. He's able to do more, the word is hyper, beyond all that we ask or think. Because his expectations on ours are not on the same level, are they? His thoughts are higher than ours. It's not just that. He's able to do much more or more abundantly than all we ask or think because he doesn't give out his grace in little droplets. It's abounding, overflowing. It's more than that. He is able to do very much more, far more abundantly than all that we ask or think because he's a God of super abundance. And so here's the thing. Why does he want this? To be our prayer together. To be serious about this. So that his glory fills the church from generation to generation for all eternity. Look at, look at verse 20. Read that verse carefully. And then I want you to think of what God might do in and through you. You as a community. You as an individual. And reflect on this truth that God is perfectly capable of doubling that. Tripling that. etc. In other words, going so far beyond it that you wouldn't look back at the present moment today in August and wonder how you and I could be so short-sighted. This isn't a magic trick, though. God's power is not ours to do with what we like with. If you would love to see verse 20 come to pass, You've got to ask yourself, if you're on the map of the three chapters it's taken to get Paul to this point, and what would it look like then for a transformed life in 4, 5, and 6? So in closing, let me ask you a question. What would it look like for God to answer your sincere prayer of faith of a fuller comprehension of your faith? Or what would it do to your heart and life action? Have you noticed indications in your life that we're lacking in a fuller heart grasp of the love of God he's immersed you in? What would be some early signs that he's at work in you and taking up residence in your life more fully? What sorts of life rhythms and patterns would start to be a part of this process here as it he transforms us of grasping with all the saints the new life that's in how does that phrase, with all the saints, begin to shape our life patterns? There's a challenge here for all of us. I want to give a challenge here to our, our deacons as well. This is a real powerful opportunity here from these verses. A challenge for you to get your groups together. And really begin to pray that God does this amongst our church bodies. That he begins in small bands of committed folks who really want to see God advance his kingdom through us. That he changes our personal lives, our marriages, our homes, our church, our community, our county, our state, our nation, the world. How awesome would it be for the body to take initiative and be intentional about sharing life together and really call out to the Lord together in dedicated prayer that what? That He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with might through His Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you all, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height To know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. May God's people be able to say from this day forward, we are the house God moved. We are the house God moved.